You are once again listening to 42 to Doomsday, and for the next four hours, I'm going to be talking about Eric Sayward, so these two Muppets don't have to. So welcome, Jay, uh, once again to 42 to Doomsday. It's lovely to have you back. It's lovely to be back. Uh, you know what? An Australian holiday is always my favourite holiday, and I'm so glad that you guys invited me over and paid my fare once again. Brilliant. Mark, where's this money coming from that we're paying, Jay? It's certainly not from Patreon. We haven't set an account up yet. <laughs> then you definitely need to. I think we will now. <laughs> so, Jay, uh, Mark and I here at 42 to Doomsday recently celebrated by not mentioning it at all our first year anniversary uh, anniversary as uh, podcasters. We didn't celebrate our first anniversary either. We didn't mention it. Do you know why? I don't think a year is long enough. I think anybody who sets up a podcast, you know, a year as a target shouldn't really be a target. A year is not enough to really say, right, we've been doing it. Because if you set up a podcast, for sure... You should be intending to do at least a year, shouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. And if you don't get as far as a year, then you've really failed. So I think, well, two years was our the first one that we marked because that was when I first thought to myself, right, we've actually achieved something here. Absolutely. I mean, I know when Mark and I started uh, doing this, um, we did some test podcasts, didn't we, Mark? Oh, they're appalling. And... Uh, <laughs> And you are, obviously, as with as with uh, podcasting, as with anything else, you only get better as you, as you, you do more of it. Yeah. And uh, I remember I was listening to a podcast this week where the, uh, the, the the people who are involved in it have done it for eight or nine years, and they're up to almost six hundred episodes. And they were sort of saying, you really need do need to do you know ten or fifteen before you sort of find your own voice. Yeah, yeah. How how long did it did it take you and and, and your uh, your friends with the Blue Box podcast to sort of find your voices? Well. Oh. We had such a nightmare to start with because I'd never even listened to a podcast when we first did it. And so I had no idea how it was going to really work. And we did it in person and we recorded it um, analog. And so then we converted the recordings into files and uploaded them. And the stereo was all out and all these other problems. But the worst thing was... Because I thought, right, we're going to be doing 60 minutes an episode. I thought, right, well, we could get together for an evening and record three in one go. So we, on that first day, we got together, recorded the first one. And then as soon as we finished the first one, had a quick cup of tea and recorded the second one. And then as soon as we finished the second one, had another cup of tea and recorded the third one. And by the third one, we were just all knackered, had nothing mm. left to say. So if you go back and listen to our episode three, you'll find Mark's dropping out of the stereo because the recording's <laughs> so bad. In fact, it doesn't really make any difference because by that time Mark was asleep, so he didn't say anything at all anyway. And there's me and Lee kind of struggling to stay on topic when the pair of us are just thinking of getting home to our pillows and duvet covers. It's it's strange because, well, it's funny, because I think, Mark, our first one that we released, apart from the intro version, was also the one about the P- Peter Capaldi's casting, which was, I think, the third or fourth one that we'd actually, you know, had a go at. Yes, that's right, because we had a couple of uh, failed attempts 
where I pressed the or selected the wrong microphone, so that was unusable for two hours talking about the John Nathan Turner biography, which in retrospect, I'm glad we actually didn't use that recording because two hours to talk about one book is, is too long. Mm. But yeah, we did the missing episodes one as well, which we had in the can and sort of um, I went back and listened to that and hacked more out of it. But uh, there's no there's no right or wrong way about doing a podcast, is there? JR, uh, you said you hadn't been exposed to podcasts where I started listening to them in about 2007. And if I look at my podcast list now compared to then, I mean, the podcast I started listening to, I don't listen to anymore. Oh, uh, really? The best ones, or the ones that I enjoy the most anyway, are those that are just conversations. Yeah. And although the podcasters may have a list of things that they want to get through, like Radio Free Scarrow, I'm assuming we all listen to Radio Free Scarrow, right? Mm. They have the perfect they have the perfect setup. They have a news list, and then they have a topic. So going through the news list allows them all to warm up while they've got something fixed that they can go through. So if somebody's not really warmed up yet while they're doing the news list, it doesn't really matter. So that by the time they get to the conversation, they're all warmed up and ready to talk. And that's a really good way of doing it. So having a sort of fixed list of topics or whatever, that's fine. Because when you go to the pub with your mates, you might be thinking to yourself, OK, I need to bring up this, that and the other. That's fine. It's when it becomes too formatted that I think it kind of loses its magic. Because really, when you've got a pair of headphones in your ears and a couple of people or three people talking to you, it feels like you're down the pub or down the cafe with those people and you're just having a conversation, albeit one that you can't necessarily take part in yourself unless you're shouting at your headphones. But it just feels like a conversation that you're eavesdropping on. Whereas if it's too formatted, it starts to sound like a magazine programme you know, from the television. And the thing about magazine programs is I've always found them very dull because as soon as they get onto a topic I'm not interested in, you zone out. And then if it comes back to something you are interested in, it's difficult to zone back in. But if it's just a conversation, if this conversation drifts into an area you're not especially interested in, because it's just a conversation, A, it probably won't be there too long, and B, even if it is, they'll still also be talking about other things that you can stay tuned in for. What about topics? Um, I mean, you said before you've been going for two and a half years and on a weekly schedule as well, which I'm mm. frankly amazed at. How much research do you do uh, when selecting a topic? None. I don't. <laughs> Lee Lee turns up with reams of notes usually. But I don't know. I, I'm just one of those people who kind of retains Doctor Who. I'm not as bad as Stephen Schapansky. I don't know all the uh, production codes. If I started remembering production codes, I'd start losing critical information in my life, like passwords and family names. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) But I'm lucky in that I know every story in order. I could probably name every story from start to finish in order. And, you know, off the top of my head. And so that, I think because because I don't learn the technical things, necessarily. I don't think of them as technical things, but I think of them as an unfolding story. Uh, that just kind of gives you an overview of where everything fits. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. So if a topic if a topic comes up, even if I'm not prepared to talk about it, I can just visualise that topic. Like when we did the Male Companions, we talked for about an hour and a half about the Male Companions, and I think all I did was make a list so that I didn't forget anybody along the way. 
But actually, I don't think I even referred to the list because I just knew where they came, when they came, who they followed, what their stories were. And you kind of then have an overview of what that character achieved within the programme. Actually, speaking of male companions, just to divert, it was Ian Marder's, would have been Ian Marder's 70th birthday this year. I was looking at Twitter and someone had posted that. And it just it just reminded me how how sad it is that the fact that he, he died at such a young age. I think he was roughly my yeah. age, which is about 42 mm. or 43. Mm. And uh, I was just thinking that if he'd been alive today, he'd be one of those much-loved grand old men of Doctor Who. I mean, a bit like Peter Purves and Purvis and, and stuff like that. I mean, yeah, it, uh, it, yeah it's, it's, it's quite sad. But I'm um, sorry, I've just taken a side downer. But anyway. Oh, no, that's okay. Even more so than some of those others, because while... Uh, Peter Purvis and that, I mean, they're much loved because of what they did in the programme. Mm. Ian Marder, probably, because he also did the books and also he and Tom Baker were talking about the film that they didn't get off the ground. He's kind of he's kind of one of those very few figures who has the in front of and behind the cameras to call upon. I think it would have been fascinating to, to listen to him speak, you know, today about his time on the show because, I mean, there's so many people from that you know from the 70s who are now no longer with us yeah and, uh it's just and, and a, a, a bit like leela um you know in her uh, i think harry sullivan is is, a, is an underappreciated companion i think there's i mean go, you know if you look back at those early stories there's a lot there's a lot that his character offers and even though he is sidelined for some of the time i i, I enjoy the 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 three hander with that that the early tom baker team more so than say just the two hander with um with elizabeth sladen and probably season 12, we're about to do season 12 on the Blue Box podcast, actually. Probably it's one of the most interesting junctures in the series history because throughout the 60s, even when it was really popular, there's a sense that they never really quite knew what they were going to do next. And then in the 70s, it became popular again with the sort of unit format, but kind of by accident almost. So by the time you got to the end of John Pertwee's five years, it had established itself in the public consciousness in a way I don't think it really had before because when it was massively popular in 64 and 65, it was popular for being diverse and for not really having a format. But by 1974, it was popular in the public consciousness for the format that had been set up at the start of the 70s. So season 12 is an experiment and really it's... Are we going to change this format and lose our viewers? And what happened in the end was they changed the format and they gained even more viewers. But it was a real risk at the time to sort of get rid of that whole unit thing and go back off into space again. They're grounded in familiarity. We're bringing back the Cybermen and the Daleks Mm. and the Sontarans. Yeah, absolutely. As well, yeah. And they tried to recreate that in a way with season 22 with the Daleks and the Cybermen and the Sontarans, and it failed miserably. But we'll yeah. get to that later, won't we, JR? I'm sure we will, yes, I'm sure we will. I'm, I'm, because I, I studied history at, at, at university, I'm always interested in, in, in historical turning points, and I'm just about to start on a book that talks about the 1790s and how the American Revolution influenced Europe and how the European situation influenced America. So what are the... Uh, just. I'll stop showing off there. What are the other? Oh, what are the other turning? <laughs> what are the other turning points in in Doctor Who history? I mean, season twelve, as you say, Jaya, sort of threw uh, an established popular format uh, overboard and brought in a, a new format. Um, what do you think are the other turning points in the show's history, for good or for for, for bad? Well, obviously, nineteen seventy would be one. 
or 69 mm. and 70, where the unit format first came in. Because I do, I do believe that really established Doctor Who, those five years with John Pertwee, really established Doctor Who as a program with longevity and mm. something, and something that the public could look upon as a regular fixture, as opposed to, as opposed to something that was always there, but that was always different. Here it's yeah. something that's always there and they know what they're going to get from it. And then the next turning point, obviously, is season 18, yes. which, which, <laughs> yeah, but... Spit it out. <laughs> well... Come on, I did say for good or for ill, so... Yeah, well, season 18, really, they gut the fun out of Doctor Who, don't they? And season 18 is also the point at which Doctor Who stops trying to be a child-friendly program anymore. I mean, I was thinking about that earlier this week in sort of sort of semi-preparation for this. I was thinking that perhaps one of the things that perhaps is wrong with Doctor Who under Eric Sayward is that it lost a lot of its whimsy. I mean, mm. I, I haven't gone back and watched much of the Graham Williams era for many a year. But my impression is that that particular uh, era had a lot of, I mean, had a lot of whimsy. I mean, you see it in City of Death, you see it in Horns of Nymont. Um, and then by jettisoning that in season uh, 18, um, and, and then, you know, season 19, etc., when Sayward comes in, or season 20, really, I suppose, they, they, mm. they do lose that. And the show becomes a bit more po-faced. Yes, it uh, does. And less, yeah. less approachable, in a sense. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, what happens is, because I've always talked about this, the fact that I, I do believe it is first and foremost a children's program and that they put other things in to make it, you know, something that other viewers can watch. And I think you always have to, if you're one of the people making the program, bear in mind that your primary target audience is kind of the sort of six to 12 year olds. You always must have something in there that the six, six to 12 year olds can appreciate. And I think the Peter Capaldi stories, for instance, have been doing that great because I think in spite of what some other people might think, I think the Matt Smith years stories were perfect for children because you had a doctor that children could really engage with. I think they mm. took a bit of a risk with Peter Capaldi, but what they've done with Peter Capaldi, and I've said this as well, is they've kind of turned him into a Victor Meldrew for kids. So he's the kind of, <laughs> he's this kind of character who's saying yeah. all the things that the kids would really love to say, but probably think they couldn't get away with. And it's still got the monsters and the scariness, and kids love the monsters and the scariness. Reminds me of the Hinchcliffe years, when you had a doctor in Tom Baker who was a bit like a Victor Meldrew for kids even back then, who would, you know, call out the brigadier and make fun of him. Unlike John Pertwee, who'd be a bit pompous about his relationship with the brigadier, Tom Baker, with not just the brigadier, but with everybody he encountered across those three years, would make fun of them in the same way that kids would love to make fun of adults if they think they could get away with it. And you still had the monsters and you still had the scariness. And I think... Series 8 that we're just in the middle of now, just coming to the end of now as we record this, uh, that reminds me greatly of the Hinchcliffe years. And that's what the programme lost in the 80s. All of a sudden, the lead character wasn't somebody that the kids could really identify with anymore, or, or even more so than identify with, somebody that they would aspire to be. All of a sudden, the Doctor was a, 
a weak character filled with flaws and not fun anymore. And that's not somebody that the kids are going to say, that's what I'd like to be like when I'm a grown up. No kid is going to, no kid's going to look at Peter Davison or Colin Baker and say, I'd like to be like that when I'm a grown up. I can, I, I mean, I can say that with Peter Davison. I mean, uh, I think at the time that Peter Davison came on board, I was sort of transitioning from being uh, a child into a, a teenager. And you're sort yeah. of looking around for, for, I suppose, role models to sort of, you know, pattern yourself on a little bit, you know, what works you know what works here and what doesn't work there and going from tom baker who had such a commanding presence yet had as you say that sort of uh mercurial aspect to his character that made him appealing to children i mean as i've recently watched horror of fang rock and the way uh tom baker treats everyone bar leela <laughs> it would, would make most kids laugh because i mean he's treating these adults uh, as if they're sort of uh you know idiots basically you yeah know, not, not not up to speed with what's actually going on and not understanding the gravity of the situation and he treats them as such but peter davison came on and and while you know there are some stories that i like about the era the the, the character that he was you know asked to portray was one that as a teenager or as a you know a newly sprouted teenager i, sh- I just couldn't get on board with because there was there was no strength to it as such, and he, as you say, he had flaws. And as a teenager, you're well aware of your own flaws. Why, why should you aspire to be, to, uh, to be uh, model yourself on someone who's uh, a character that's got many of their own, you know, many flaws themselves? Christopher H. Bidney developed the character of the Fifth Doctor as an old man in a young man's body, and I think as soon as Bidmead left, that just went out the window. The thing that Christopher Bidmead missed is that if you put an old man in a young man's body, he's also going to be hes going to be grumpy but funny with it. Or at least that's what you'd need on screen. That's what you want the, for the kids to be able to engage with. He needs to be grumpy but funny with it. And they they got rid of the funny. Yeah. So he just, yeah. he just became the kind of old man that you wouldn't want to spend time with in a young man's body. And Davison tried to get the funnies in. Mm. But, I mean, J&T was obviously uh, having uh, his having a reaction to the whole Tom Baker silliness uh, as it was perceived and just smashed all the humour out of it. And I think if he had more humour in, it would have been a much better, uh, a much more rounded portrayal. Not better, because personally, Davison was a doctor I grew up with. Um, so I've got a lot of you know fondness for him, like you've got for Tom Baker or John Pertwee. Mm. I don't think you've got John Pertwee, are you? Tom Baker. Tom Baker, yeah, yeah. What about McCoy, though? Well, I think McCoy brings it back. I think McCoy... Yeah. I... I... I have a lot of experience of people who say have said to me, oh, I really got into it with Sylvester McCoy. Sylvester McCoy was a doctor that I could really appreciate when I was a child. And I think that's right. I think in spite of... Um, because Peter Davison, in spite of the character, is a great actor, lumbered with mm. a bad character. Well, Sylvester McCoy, I don't think he's a, a particularly an actor, but he brings that aspect back to the character of the doctor that the kids could get on board with. So I think those three years, even season 24, I think those three years are three years of Doctor Who that the kids could really appreciate once again. Well, season 24 was made for kids, wasn't it? Yeah, and why not? Well, there was nobody else watching it, so they may as well. <laughs> no, it's, it's serious, that's what, I mean, that's what it's probably targeted to. It was, it was for an alternate entertainment against Coronation Street. And mm. 
for the kids to watch. That's it. Season 24 is the programme getting back to its roots. It, those four stories feel a bit like William Hartnell to me. In that each, each one, you can't quite tell where it's going to go next. And it feels as random and as fun as the sort of William Hartnell stories could be. I think it's more Willy Wonka for me. Yeah, yeah. I think I said this before. I can appreciate now what they were trying to do with it. I just think they were hampered by a lot of production constraints at the time. Mm. Although I do think if you'd been eight, I'm always saying this, I say this about the new series, especially with fans who don't particularly like the Stephen Moffat era, I say, imagine if you'd seen that first when you were eight years old. I think if you'd been eight years old when you first saw Time in the Rani, you'd have loved it because those bubble things, they were great. The monsters <laughs> with the three eyes. And not only that, but you get to see on the screen what they see through those three eyes and the big tongues and all this kind of stuff. And even Mel and um, the Rani pretending to be <laughs> Mel. What eight-year-old wouldn't love the villain dressing up as and pretending to be the companion. I think a lot of people with the show, as they get older, they, they get more serious about it and they tend to forget that they tend mm. to lose their inner eight-year-old, I suppose. Yeah. And and I suppose a lot of, if we all look back, a lot of the criticism of the series at that time uh, from anyway, my reading or my viewing comes from you know older teenage fans or fans in their early 20s who grew up during the mid to late 70s. And they've, you know, they've embraced more serious things, but they've forgotten that, you know, the show that they love, as you say, JR, is really targeted at kids 6 to 12. Yeah. If they only sort of were able to adopt that mindset, they may have been able to watch the series with a, with a better, more appreciative view. Well, this is the thing. People want the program to grow up with them. So I think a lot of people who were watching... And the people who were making Doctor Who in the early 1980s wanted to make a program that was suitable for people in their late teens and early 20s. That's hence, right. Hence you have all these really complicated stories that, while they might make sense to somebody who's really following it very closely, to the general public, probably just felt like a nonsense. If, if those stories had been um, an episode a week instead of two episodes a week, which means you could probably just about get away with it. But if there had been an episode a week like had been originally planned, presumably, can you imagine watching something like Ark of Infinity with sort of <laughs> half an eye half an eye on Ark of Infinity, half an eye on dinner, and half an eye on getting the kids to bed? Can you imagine following that story? The ratings for series nineteen, season nineteen, were actually quite high, weren't they? And it just dropped off for the next series, which means that obviously people weren't coming back the following year and, and Ark of Infinity wasn't the most auspicious of starts, was it? No. Well, I think the way ratings perhaps works now, but definitely worked then is if you didn't like something, it didn't mean you wouldn't necessarily stop watching it immediately because at the time, of course, you still only had three channels in this country. Hmm. So you probably just would watch BBC One anyway. And if Doctor Who was on, you'd remember... I'm talking about the grown-ups here. The, you know, because it was on at half past seven at night. It was in amongst the adult programming in the evening, which is ridiculous for Doctor Who. So these adults are probably all thinking, yeah, okay, Doctor Who's on. Let's, let's do the dishes because it's not very good at the moment. But they'd still have it on and they'd still have half an eye on it. It's only sort of when you get to the following series and, or maybe even two or three years down the line when people are saying, well, Doctor Who's on, but, 
God's sake, it's been rubbish for the last two years. Yeah, let's put ITV on instead. Robin and Sherwood. Yeah, so gradually the viewing figures diminish rather than, you know, instantly. So what needed to happen to, to shake things up? Well, I think what did happen, bringing in an actor... I mean, I've got nothing against Peter Davison or Colin Baker, but I think they were saddled with characters that kids... Peter Davison more so. I think Colin Baker is an act, a character that the kids could just about get on board with if the stories had matched the character. I don't think... I think this is the big problem in Colin Baker's time, is that the stories just don't match the character. That's right. Yeah. Well, they match an aspect of him that is not the aspect of him that, in hindsight, you would have wanted them to match. They match the bullishness, but they don't match the sort of eccentricity. Exactly. I think, actually, if you put Colin Baker's Doctor in the Sylvester McCoy stories, including the coat, I think you get away with it. I think that Doctor in that costume in Paradise Towers works perfectly. But I just don't think he works in something like Vengeance on Varos. Sayward, um, sorry to say the word, but Sayward seemed obsessed <laughs> with the, the macho aspects of yeah. story writing. And, I mean, I, it, 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 just, it just doesn't work, I suppose, with the character that, um, that Colin Baker was wanting to portray because it, it was a, a more physical, violent world that the, that the Doctor inhabited more so than the sort of the, the deaths as you would see in the, in, in the, in the 60s and 70s. But it just seemed that uh, Colin wanted to go one way and the shows were going in another way. Mm. And it, it just, they very rarely touch base. Well, look at what happened with the Sixth Doctor in the comics. You had, and in the audios as well, eventually. In the audios, you have Evelyn Smythe, who's the older companion. You could never imagine of having that on the TV where you've got Busty Perry instead. You've got in the comics you've got frobisher the talking penguin mm. can you imagine mm. that on the tv only during the sylvester mccoy stories not during the colin baker stories those those voyager strips in in, in dwm are, are more memorable than 90 percent of colin's stories really aren't they oh they are yeah, yeah. i think eric sayward's problem here is that he's not very good at the deftness and doctor who really needs a lightness of touch because as a program, it is spinning lots of plates. Like I say, it's children's series that needs to put stuff in that adults can engage with. So unlike something like EastEnders, which from one week to the next, and this is not just to do with the format, but also to do with what it's hoping to achieve, from one week to the next, you know what you're getting from EastEnders, and the people who are making EastEnders know what they're producing. So nobody has to... I'm not going to be disingenuous enough to say nobody works hard, but nobody has to work too hard to understand what they need to do. Whereas Doctor Who, you need to keep a lot of plates spinning in order to keep the entire audience happy. And I don't think Eric Sayward was deft enough to do that. So what you do get is lots of, initially, immediately following Christopher H. Bidmead, lots of overcomplicated stories that nobody can follow, with very few characters that the audience can engage with or identify with, and therefore nobody that the audience wants to come back next week to find out what happens to. There's nobody in the Peter Davison era that the audience at home can sit and say, God, I hope they're okay. I hope they're not dead by the end of the story. Nobody cares about any of those characters in Terminus. Nobody cares about any of those characters in Warriors of the Deep. So if they're all dead at the end of the story, nobody's too upset about it. And I think Eric Sayward just 
didn't have the capability to make a series where you could have something for everybody sitting at home to engage with in the way that they had throughout the Tom Baker years. Because even the Graham Williams stories, for as much criticism as they get for Tom Baker running away with the programme and, of course, the budgets running out of control so they couldn't afford to make the programme the way they wanted to anymore, it still engaged an audience. And that's what it lost in the 80s, I think. I, I find that some of the characters... I mean, we look at the visitation where you have Richard Nice, I suppose he's the lovable rogue. But, I mean, as... as But he's the only person in it. That's the trouble. That's true, that's true. But, I mean, as as Sayward's writing progresses and you, you come to resurrection, you come to revelation, all right, he, he's able to create characters, I suppose. But they're such grim and... Yeah. And, and, and horrible people that, as you say, who exactly are you rooting for in, in, in each of those stories? Because I mean, uh, I mean, I personally really enjoy Revelation of the Daleks, and, and but I can understand why people would go. I mean, is this Doctor Who? Is this something that would appeal to a six to, or a twelve-year-old? And clearly, you know, it, it wouldn't. And it it uh, it's just it's just strange that he would go down that path. I know. And, get, and embrace it. You know, he would he would it'd be like a death grip. He'd be embracing that path so hard that he was strangling the life out of the show in a, in a sense. Very brief point on Revelation since you brought it up. And the one thing that the kids would like in Revelation of the Daleks is the Daleks who are in it for three minutes at the end. <laughs> Revelation's like a, an 80s example of a Doctor Light episode, isn't it? And a, and yeah. a Dalek Light episode as well. Sayward has said that he saw Doctor Who as a action slash space adventure type series. That's why a lot of the characters either die or just nasty and are pretty much uh, unmemorable but I think also the producer, I mean JNT just had a sort of uh, an approach to, to to the script process was like I'll just let my script editor get on with it and I'll yeah. just, there's no there's no collaboration there where Holmes and Hinchcliffe you had the collaboration, Dix and, and Let's you had the collaboration, they mapped out a season JNT was saying I'm happy you, you do what you want and I'll just whack it on the screen. Well JNT's only contribution was to say what he didn't want really wasn't it exactly he came yeah. in with a, with a list of negatives and no real positives i mean he was talking we don't want any comedy we want to get rid of k9 we want to change the costume we want to do we want to you know it's it was a reactionary entrance to the show where was where was the positivity in terms of this is what i want the show to be this is where i want the show to be in a couple of years time this is the the character of the doctor instead it's just a whole load of negativity I mean, what was his creative vision? And the problem was, I don't think he actually had a creative vision. I don't think he had one. The only the only thing JNT creatively did was the look of the show. He, he was all about how the show looked, wasn't he? Mm. Front of house, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and the merchandising, and, and he was a brilliant publicist. Absolutely, yeah, he was. So, I don't... I, you know, JNT got an absolutely horrible time off some of the fans and things like DWB in the 1980s. And I don't think he quite deserved that. But I think what you have in the 1980s, particularly from season 20 onwards, is a case of wrong person, wrong place, wrong time. Hmm. I don't think either JNT or Eric Sayward, and, you know, I go on about Eric Sayward on our podcast. Let it go. (laughs) (laughs) If you're going to be honest about it, I've got nothing against Eric Sayward per se. I just think wrong person, wrong show. And same with JNT. Either of those two people could probably have made a great success of something else. It's just that neither of them were particularly suited for Doctor Who. And having them both there together at the same time, 
You know, you could have got away with one of them not being particularly suited as long as the other one was. But having both of them there at the same time meant that nobody in that office was suited to Doctor Who to make sure it stayed on the right track. It was a perfect storm, wasn't it? And the audience mm. was were the casualties. But, I mean, I suppose to JNT's credit, when Andrew Cartmel came in, I mean, JNT's script hands-off approach enabled Cartmel to change the whole tone of the show, didn't it, really? And I think that's the one instance where JNT's visual vision actually starts to match what's coming through in the script. Mm. And that makes a big difference. Because all of a sudden, in spite of the fact that it was being really cheaply made at this point, and if you've got any complaints about those stories, I think that's got to be the biggest one. But I think something like The Happiness Patrol, it looks dirt cheap, but what you see pictured on screen matches what's in the script. Yes. And so and so it suits itself in a way that the sort of first two-thirds of that decade really didn't. Mm. I'll tell you one other thing about Eric Saywood is because Christopher Bidmead didn't do a second series, which is what JNT wanted him to do. JNT was stuck, and nobody wanted that job. And when Eric Saywood came up with the script, which, okay, we know now was just the Time Warrior sort of uh, remade, basically, when Eric Saywood came up with a script that obviously felt to JNT like proper Doctor Who, the way Doctor Who should be, he was the obvious and only choice for that job. So you can't blame um, John Nathan Turner for offering the job to Eric Sayward. And Eric Sayward at the time was a writer with two radio plays, I think, to his name and not much mm. else. So you can't blame him for taking the job either. Two desperate men. Yeah. <laughs> Clutching at one another as the storm envelops them. Mm. Sayward's constant uh, complaint, and I've, I've read interviews recently and I've, you know, I've looked at the uh, Trials and Tribulation documentary, was the, um, a lack of usable scripts. And, I mean, if that it appears to be right, I mean, that's that's remarkable. I mean, why, where was the, why was there a lack of, a, you know, cultivating writers for the show? It's just, it just seems, I mean, Doctor Who is essentially about story. I mean, we understand that at that time, special effects weren't what they, you know, what they are now. So you had to rely on character and you had to rely on, on scripts. Why was there, there seems to be just a lack of, you know, cultivating scripts because when J&T came in, wasn't it wasn't the cupboard bare essentially? They had to go scrambling around for uh, Terence Dix's old script for uh, State of Decay. It's insane, isn't it? It should be the first thing the producer does when he comes into the office: make sure they've got something to make. <laughs> that's that's, that's yeah. just a fundamental point, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, I think JNT's first priority was to make sure he got the titles updated, wasn't it? Yeah, and the music done at the same time. So mm. um, I suppose we could talk all evening about the negativity. Uh, surrounding, I suppose, say with... I mean, both of you, is there anything positive that you would say came out of... Uh, from, from from Eric Sayworth in terms of his contribution to the show? Uh, I'll let you go, Mark. <laughs> I've actually got quite a few because, I mean, it's, it's a shame that his era gets... And uh, the 80s in particular just gets derided as it's all crap because it's clearly not. I mean, there are some great stories in there and some were done under his... Editorship, you know, uh, Visitation, Earthshock, Frontios, Enlightenment. There are some good stories, but unfortunately, I think some of the duds in those in those seasons over, overshadow it. And he rewrote The Awakening as well. Yeah. He also, in the Twin Dilemma novelization, which is infinitely better than the, than the TV serial, he he names the chemical that triggers a regeneration process as Lindos. I bet you didn't know that. Lindos. Yeah, I'm really scrabbling here. <laughs> 
Is that like a, a midi? Is that like a midi chlorian in in Star Wars? Is that what that is, Mark? I think yeah. it is actually. Yeah, I think he was that Lucas Ig Lucas, you know, twenty years beforehand. The problem with Sayward is the whole trial debacle where they had eighteen months oh, yeah. and got nothing right. Still to this day, just just beggars belief. And of course, the way he left in that. I mean, that Starburst interview is isn't a great example of how not to leave your uh, your burn your career bridges, isn't it, really? Yeah. Here's a hypothetical for you guys. You know, if Terence Dix or Robert Holmes had left the program on similar bad terms, you know, would this change your perception of them and their work? Probably would. Having said that, I already felt about Eric Sayward the way I do now before that interview came out, so I can't say it really affected how I felt about him. I, th- I think Holmes and Dix have a body of work behind them that would allow them... Uh... A little bit of latitude. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, and unfortunately, uh, Eric Sayward uh, didn't really. I mean, uh, as Mark said, that, that is the that is the best way to kill your career at the BBC by doing something like or that. Or anywhere, really. And uh, it's, it's really unfortunate that it seems that Sayward's career never went anywhere as a writer. I understand that he was doing some work in Germany for radio, which I suppose was his first the first thing he did, but it just seems like that no one came out of that particular era very well. I mean, J&T was reduced to, you know, producing the, the BBC videos. <laughs> Pantomimes. Sayward went off to Germany. And even Colin Baker. I mean, I, I of all of them, I suppose I feel sorry, most sorry for Colin Baker because he came in, you know, he... he, he more than, say, J&T, had a real vision for what he wanted to, wanted to be and wanted to do. And at every turn, uh, he was thwarted. I mean, the, cost, the costume. I mean, I, even I can't justify the costume. And that, uh, that you, you, you see that on the screen and you just go, well, how am I meant to take this seriously? I mean, for a, such a visual you know, program, how am I meant to take this seriously? And poor Colin, I mean, we all know that now with Big Finish, people are more appreciative of him and his performance. But uh, it's, it's of, of the three... I feel the most sorry for um, for for Colin Baker. You know, it was the 1980s, wasn't it? And Doctor oh, Who during the Doctor Who during the 1970s had become famous for having a lead character who had a slightly unusual dress sense. You know, with John Pertwee, he had the frilly shirts mm. and the frilly collars and that, and the uh, velvet jackets, which was slightly odd. And then Tom Baker comes along and he's wearing, well, the scarf. So I suppose that if you've imposed a uniform, a cricket uniform, on your fifth doctor, then when the sixth doctor comes along, especially mid-1980s, and we all know what fashions were like in the 1980s already, <laughs> I suppose I suppose Colin Baker's u- costume kind of feels like the logical progression, but it's... A bizarre logic. Yeah. Yeah, a bizarre logic. Not... Not necessarily the most sensible logic, but it doesn't necessarily feel unpredictable. No, and that poor old costume design. I mean, her, you know, her career probably didn't recover as well. <laughs> no, <laughs> Pat Godfrey, poor thing. Make it more tasteless, more tasteless. A man who wears Hawaiian shirts is giving out costume advice. I will go back to the to the um, subject of is there anything good that came out of the JNT and Eric Sayward years, and some of those stories wouldn't have been bad stories as long as they weren't Doctor Who stories. I think this is part of the problem. Doctor Who is a programme that should be able to go anywhere and do anything as long as it remembers who its audience is. And and I think this is what the modern programme's been doing really well, the whole of the modern programme. Russell T Davies made Series 2 into a programme that 
ostensibly is for the teens who are looking at David Tennant and Billy Piper and following the relationship between those two. And Doctor Who at that point is more for the teens than it is for any other audience, but there's still plenty of stuff in series two for the entire rest of the audience. And in the sort of early to mid-1980s, this is kind of what they forget. So a story like Terminus or a story like Kinder would have been a great story in another program or even as a standalone drama of its own. But the trouble is those characters and those situations don't fit well with the TARDIS team and the way Doctor Who works. So there's kind of a disconnect between the characters and the stories during the 1980s that I think, again, alienates an audience because you can't, like I say, you can't really engage with the programme. And and I mean, and you see that in stories like you know Resurrection and Revelation. I mean, we we're talking about Eric Sowood tonight, so that's why I'm harking back. I mean, you're mm. absolutely right because it seems, especially in Revelation, as Mark said, it's almost a Doctor Light episode, uh, twenty five years ahead of time. But um, he's more interested in the supporting cast uh, than yeah. he is in in the Doctor and Perry. And it takes the better part of an episode for them to actually find themselves into the you know inject themselves into the story. And then by that stage, it's basically passed them by and events are taken out of the Doctor's hands with the arrival of the Daleks. Um, well, that's it. And it doesn't really engage. And If you take the Doctor out of Resurrection and if you take the Daleks out of Resurrection and substitute something else, it makes a great sci-fi war movie where you've got two factions of this alien race bringing their war to Earth. That makes a great story, but it just... None of that fits with the series, and it's strange because we all laud the early, you know, the Hinchcliffe era because it, it harks back to the, you know, the, the Hammer horror and, and, and Amicus and all that sort of thing. Uh, but I think it's cherry picking the very best of, of those sort of, you know, the atmosphere, the tone, the characters. We, look, we we fast forward to the eighties where you know it's the it's the it's the action movie boom. It's 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 the Schwarzeneggers, it's the Bruce Willis's, and. The problem is, I think that Eric Sayward is cherry picking the wrong things from that. He's picking, he's cherry picking the macho-ness and the violence and the, you know, the, the just the aggro. Yeah. And as you say, it doesn't fit with the show. The other thing that was really popular at the time was the the horror movie in the wake of Night of the Living Dead, and then Halloween had undergone a renaissance, and the horror movie was now all of a sudden about how gory and graphic you could make it. And hence these 80s stories, as well as being macho and violent, are also quite horrific. And, I don't know, in 1967, the BBC purchased a foam machine. So all of a sudden, so all of a sudden, you've got a bunch of stories with foam in, whether they really deserve foam or not. The foam or the deep. Yeah. The foam, the foam era, we should call yeah. it. But in the 1980s, in the 1980s, all of a sudden, horror movies have got really gory and graphic. And instead of harking back to an earlier age of horror movies, which is what Hinchcliffe and Holmes did in the 70s, they were looking back to the horror movies of the late 50s and early 60s. Mm. So there's kind of a slight distance there. But Eric Saywood is looking at the horror movies that are contemporary with Doctor Who at the time. And that doesn't work because you're making Doctor Who for kids. So you've got all these really graphic bits of, in Time Flight, the bit where, um, what's he called, Khalid? melts and all this hideous goo pours out. comes out, yeah. Yeah, and you've got the same in... So many of those stories have got that same effect, the melting goo. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, you see that with Lytton and his hands getting crushed. I mean, that that that, that mm. is particularly unforgivable in a, in a show that ostensibly is aimed at, at kids. 
And then there's the, the officer on the bridge uh, in Resurrection who, you know, turns around and his, half his face has been eaten away. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. even as an adult now, you sort of wince when you see that. And you can only imagine what parents might have thought if the, the young ones are being ex- exposed to that sort of thing. And, you know, so would we turn around and say, well, you know, the show is sort of aiming to, towards a more adult audience. But all you're really doing is alienating both ends of the viewing spectrum. Parents won't let their kids watch that. And kids don't want to watch that sort of thing. They want to be entertained. They don't want to be scared. I mean, not scared, simply scared. You can be scared in watching Doctor Who, but you, terrified? Uh, terrified and, and dread is, is something that children shouldn't ever be really exposed to. And it's, it's a real black mark, I think, uh, on the show and on the people who put that up on, the, up on the air. I will make an admission here. I do think Hinchcliffe and Holmes went too far. I think Mary Whitehouse was, to a certain degree, right. Although I don't think they went too far as badly as Eric Sayward did. You know, I think I think Hinchcliffe and Holmes has always been my favourite period of Doctor Who, but watching it now, I do look back on it and think there are some things in there. When you see the bullet holes appearing in... Um, Condo's chest. Condo's chest in yeah. Brain of Morbius. Yeah. I think that was a mistake. And there were a couple of other things, I think, that were mistakes during that period as well. But by and large, what they really did was make horror movies for kids. Yes. And because there were horror movies for kids... The grown-ups who'd already seen these horror movies in the pictures 15 years before could sort of appreciate what they're doing. Everybody can love Hinchcliffe and Holmes years. Whereas making adult action-adventure ex-certificate violent movies for kids in the 1980s is... For for one thing, it's not going to appeal to the adults because they can go and watch those movies and you can't push the boat that far in a series that's on BBC One at half past seven at night... So the the adults aren't getting from Doctor Who what they're getting from these movies if they go to the pictures and see them. And the kids aren't getting the fun stuff that they used to love. And this is what you've got to remember. Every single year, Doctor Who has got a new generation of four-year-olds who are seeing it for the very first time. I always say this with relation to the Daleks, when people say you should rest them. I say no, because every single year you've got a whole new audience who's seen the programme for the very first time who need their first Dalek story. I suppose back then, and I'm talking about in the 70s and 80s, where... Yeah, you know, these the, days you've got rewatch. That's right. So, so yeah, I, I think they should rest it in the new series, personally, now. Well, obviously they can't, because they're contractually obliged to use the Daleks, <laughs> or else... They lose the ability to use the Daleks. But I think what Stephen Moffat's done, by and large, has been good because he's not necessarily had a Dalek story every year, but he's had them appear. Uh, For instance, Day of the Doctor and Time of the Doctor, they are sort of, on the surface of it, Dalek stories, but they're not really Dalek stories. Daleks are in the background. And I don't think that's a bad way of doing it. Even Asylum of the Daleks backgrounds the Daleks by and large for an adventure in which the Daleks are just there, but they're not the focus of it. Mm. Absolutely. I think, that's a, I think that's a good way of doing it if you need to do it. But remember, these kids aren't going to watch Doctor Who on rewatch and on DVD unless they've got into it in the first place. So I still think having the Daleks there is important for them. I was just going to say, just harking back to our talk about um, you know, the use of horror in, in 70s Doctor Who, I was, as I said before, I, was, I recently rewatched uh, Horror of Fang Rock, and watching it um, reminded me of uh, a sh- an episode of a, an anthology series called Shadows that was... I remember watching an episode which is a children's uh, horror anthology series. And I remember one winter in 1984 watching an episode of it. And it had, it, I think it featured Jenny Agatha. I think that's her. 
and it was set in a haunted railway station with her and her brother. And the sense of creeping dread that I got from that was the same sense that I, I get from watching Horror of Fang Rock. And it, I think during the 70s, I understand where you're coming from with, you know, the Hinchcliffe era may have overstepped the mark a couple of times. But I think by and mm. large, there was that, that atmosphere of uh, the, the children could be exposed to sort of low-level horror. And a show, yes. an episode like, you know, a story like Horror of Fang Rock was, was the sort of the perfect thing because... I mean, it's it, it's it's one location. It's a, it's it's rising tension. It's atmosphere. It's swirling fog. It's darkness. But there's not anything there that will send kids screaming into the night. And um, I think that uh, when, when, as you say, when they moved into the eighties with with the slasher films, um, and and they the, 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 fortunately, I think Sayward fell under the influence of the particularly stupid slasher films. I mean, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I find a lot to a lot to take away from, say, something like Halloween. But there's no redeeming features at all in Nightmare on Elm Street, for instance, or the Friday the Thirteenth movies. Um, so there there was a, a step change in you know the sort of horror that they were sort of uh, tapping into, and I think they didn't they they picked up on the wrong things. Like like Sayward picked up on the on the wrong things from from Robert Holmes. I mean, obviously he was, a, he was, a, you know, he admired him, and he was a sort of, a, you know, Holmes's protege. But I think Sayward, you know, picked up, picked on the wrong things, and and injected the wrong things into his story, and then I think infected the Colin Baker era to an extent. I think what's missing there, Robert Holmes had a real sense of character, and even though his characters would often be slightly caricature-like, you they still had a heart at the centre of them. There was still somebody that you could engage with. And Eric Say would seem to entirely miss that. If you look at Revelation, none, there's no heart in any of those characters, is there? No, no, they're unpleasant. Unpleasant, mm. completely unpleasant. And also, uh, Robert Holmes had this sense of the bizarre and a great imagination. He had a kind of... The Robert Holmes stories are like Roald Dahl stories, really. They're all things that children... They're all things that are fairly ordinary in a child's world taken to an extraordinary level and Robert Holmes kind of does that if you look at his Auton stories for example, he's taking things that are normal and making something extraordinary out of them and he does this to a greater or lesser degree in all of his Doctor Who stories and it's why you get great characters that children really take with them like Mr. Sin in the Talons of Wang Chiang that's some like it's not just a visual but it's also um a con- a concept that kind of really sends a chill down your spine isn't it it's, it's mr that, sin it's that injection of the bizarre or the slightly grotesque into the everyday world that doctor who really yeah. really uh, is very good at as you say spearhead i mean you have the the shop window dummies walking around the streets of london and that's just a striking it's a striking visual as you say like mr sin um, and I think, and I think that point raises another point that Doctor Who is probably best when it is earthbound or in earth-like locations, and you do have that that sense of the grotesque or the bizarre that adds a different flavour. You, you know, audiences can relate to what they're seeing, but they can get that thrill yeah. of the unknown or the unusual. Russell T Davies got it bang on. The audience at home needs to engage with the program at one level and be surprised by it at another. But if you're trying to just surprise the audience, then that's not going to work because they're not going to engage with it. The way he said everything either on Earth or with humans. And 
If you look at what's happened since, the only story that hasn't done that is The Rings of Agaten, and that's probably the biggest failure in the entire Stephen Moffat era. And that can't just be coincidence. No, not at all. So I suppose the, the, the 80s can be characterised in a sense by sort of darker stories and, 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 and more dangerous situations. Um, the, I'm, I'm sort of changing gears rather roughly here, but what do you think of, of Capaldi and the, the, the change in tone to the series? Because we, as you say, we came out of the Matt Smith era, which was definitely a, a, a young person's uh, uh, favourite. And then we have, we have mm. Peter Capaldi and the sort of the, the perceived change in tone to the show. What, I mean, what do you think about that? I think what they've done, or what Stephen Moffat's done, is really clever in that he's made the backstory something more mature and something that adults can engage with uh, much more perhaps than they did during the Matt Smith era. But what he's done is the sort of top story is just as mad and bizarre and child-friendly as it was before. A mummy on a train in space. (laughs) And yet, that story is actually a really grown-up story, Mm. a really mature story about how Clara and the Doctor are going their separate ways and being grown-ups about it. And, of course, by the end of the story, they decide not to. But actually, you've got it working on two completely different levels there. You have a really mature story about Clara and the Doctor. You've actually got quite a grown-up story about the reason why the mummy's there in the first place, but it's made accessible by being explained in fairly simple terms. And then you've got this hideous creature on a train in space. How is a kid not going to love that? So it works for absolutely everybody. And I think he's done that with all the stories this series. I think all of them, with the possible exception of Robot of Sherwood, have pretty much hit those same beats. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you see something like uh, in the in the Forest of the Night, where it's exactly the same sort of thing. It's 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 there's there's the Clara Clara and and Danny Pink story in the, bubbling along in the background, and then you have this wild story of a, a forest appearing, a world forest appearing overnight, and it makes the, it does the clever thing. I mean, some some people do complain about having child actors in Doctor Who, but it makes the clever does the clever thing of actually having these kids uh, interacting with this strange new world. And as you say, you've got the six to 12 year olds who are, who are going along for the ride with those kids uh, also. And mm. it just builds that and bridges, builds that connection between two separate audiences who are watching the one show, something for everyone effectively. I love the kids in that as well. The girl, uh, the one who kind of, um, Hearing voices? Answers everybody back. No, no, the other one. The one who answers everybody back. She's a great character. And I think a character like that is what makes the kids acceptable to grown-ups. Although it doesn't seem to have worked, but it did for me. But a character like that who answers back, it amuses the grown-ups enough that they can still follow the story of the kids. I think that's how it worked for me. I think I'm in a minority as well, because I actually thought it was all right. I don't understand the caning it got. No, I loved that story. I think it's one of the best stories this year. Again, it's it's some fans are too serious and they go, well, the science doesn't make any sense. If the science doesn't make any sense, how can I take this seriously? But, I mean, science has never made sense in Doctor Who since <laughs> 1963. So, Although Christopher H. Bidney might want to dispute that. <laughs> Yeah, but I don't think Christopher well, H. Bidney's yeah. version, version, version of science would pass muster in, uh, you know, in any science society no. around the world. So My favourite example of bad science in Doctor Who is the Tenth Planet, Kit Peddler, who is the scientist who's brought in to make the science more realistic in Doctor Who. And what does he do? 
He has Earth having a twin planet that it's never been aware of because it's exactly on the opposite side of the sun that somehow has managed to have exactly the same continental shift as the Earth so that all the continents are exactly the same size and shape but upside down, which then goes drifting off into space for no apparent reason, decides to disengage with its orbit, drift off into space, and in the dark, cold blackness of space, manages to retain its atmosphere and keep uh, everybody who lives on that planet still alive, stays out there for God knows how many years, and then arbitrarily decides to drift back into its orbit, where it just happens to manage to arbitrarily find an orbit close enough to the Earth that it can start draining the <laughs> energy from the Earth somehow. How does any of this make any kind of sense whatsoever? It was a 60s JR. <laughs> They were on something. <laughs> well, absolutely. But if they could get away with it then, why can they not get away with it now? Well, exactly. And you wonder how much of Kit Peddler was filtered through Jerry Davis, I suppose. And whether, yeah. Whether Jerry was uh, dropping acid hits at that time. But, uh, <laughs> well, it certainly felt like it. Bad uh, Science and Doctor Who, you've got to love it, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, but I, I, and I've, look, I've really um, enjoyed Series 8. I think that uh, by and large it's worked and even some of the some, some of what I would call Something that wouldn't appeal to me, like some of uh, Into the Dalek, uh, even even the, the the worst, not the worst bits, but the bits that don't appeal to me have been carried along very well by Capaldi, mm. I, I think, mm. whose who's casting was, you know, a masterstroke, really. I think uh, you had all the same elements in the Matt Smith years, but I just think it was mixed slightly differently. I think I said this on our podcast mm. a few weeks ago. All the same ingredients, but a slightly different recipe. And a very different meal as well. I was just going to say, I think you would get the same result if Capaldi was reading off a Matt, script, Matt Smith script. That yeah. There is that feel, especially in the later episodes, that um, the the way, uh, the, the lines that he's, the dialogue that, he's, that uh, Capaldi is given are very Smith-like in a way. Uh, but filtered, oh, uh, yeah. filtered through Capaldi, um, it gives a, a, brings a completely different vibe. It's like what I said about the John Hurt character in The Day of the Doctor. He, he Everybody was saying, oh, fantastic. He's like a classic Doctor. And Paul McGann in that Night of the Doctor short, everybody was saying, oh, isn't it so much better when you've got a classic style Doctor in Doctor Who? And I was thinking, well, hang on. There's still That's still Stephen Moffat dialogue coming out of their mouths. It's the performance, not the writing, that has changed your perception of those Doctors. And yes, that's exactly what we're getting with Peter Capaldi now. He's doing what Paul McGann did and what John Hurt, Hurt, Hurt did. He's taking Stephen Moffat's dialogue and giving it a different reading. Hmm. Absolutely. Can the show survive Moffat leaving? <sighs> yes, it can, as long as they get the right person in. So who's the right person? I mean, you're closer. To, you're more closer to British TV than both Mark and I. Hmm. Who, who would who would you think if you have any thoughts? You need to get somebody in who's going to carry on this modern tradition of balancing sci-fi stories for children with grown-up stories about relationships in such a way that, although some people don't think the balance is right, you've got to maintain that balance and try and get that balance right. Somebody like Phil Ford, he did the Sarah Jane adventures and is doing Wizards versus Aliens. I think he could manage it. And I know that, because I've spoken to him often enough, I know that one of his 
first thoughts when writing for Sarah Jane or writing for Wizards versus Aliens or when he's done Doctor Who is that that balance is the most important thing. You must never forget that you're telling stories for children and that hopefully the children will take into adult life and learn lessons from. But at the same time, if you're going to engage with a grown-up audience, you must never forget to put in these, uh, and it's relationships now, put in things that the adult audience, that makes them want to keep on watching. A part of the reason why, you know, you've got pretty much the exact same viewing figures from one week to the next is because even though 99% of the audience is what you'll call casual viewers, they can't stop watching because they want to know what happens with Clara and with Danny. And, you know, previously it was with Rose or with Martha or with Donna or with Amy. But they want to know what happens with those characters. They want to see those characters have some kind of a resolution. And so, in spite of the fact that it's basically telling a completely different story from one week to the next, because there's an undercurrent of a story that's going through the whole thing, people can't stop watching it. Because you mentioned Phil Ford before when I pull out Mark Gaddis as well as potential replacement. Could they get a showrunner who doesn't necessarily have the, the who baggage, as it were? Well, I think you could. I don't think Mark Gatiss could or should or would be the showrunner because mm. I don't think I don't think he'd do the sort of emotional grown-up story. I agree, I agree. So I think he'd be a disaster, quite frankly, I'm afraid. But um, Anthony Horowitz was somebody that was talked about, wasn't he? Mentioned by Phil Morris, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think he'd already been... I think the reason Phil Morris mentioned it is because he'd already been mentioned in the Daily Mirror mm. uh, or somewhere like that. I think there was a story in the Daily Mirror or one of the tabloids in Britain that already uh, that Anthony Horowitz was going to be taking over and Phil Morris just retweeted that. I'd like to thank Phil Morris for, for bringing uh, Anthony Horowitz to my attention. I've only known him through his books, but I hadn't realised that he had an extent, such an extensive television writing career. So thank you, Phil. And it's fantastic, his television writing career. Hmm. And the thing about Anthony Horowitz is, if you look at all the programmes he's done... What's he done, JR? Sorry. just He did... Well, he's responsible for Foyle's War. My mum likes that. But he's also done a couple of one-off dramas. Uh, he did one of these five-night dramas, uh, single dramas spread across the five nights of the week. Okay. But the other big thing, I think the thing that really brought him to people's attention was he was the guy who adapted Midsummer Murders for television originally. Oh, did he? Oh, yes. I like that as well. That's good. Yeah. but what, And what he does there is he manages to balance the story of the week with the characters that carry the series. Mm. And he does exactly the same thing in Foyle's War. So I think Anthony Horowitz, because his books are children's books, but his programmes are grown-up programmes, if you can get the best of both of those things into Doctor Who, again, I think he'd be a great showrunner on Doctor Who. It just all depends upon whether he'd be able to work for BBC Money, because he's working for ITV Money at the moment. If he really wants to do it, I'm sure he can work something out. Exactly. So I think, actually, Anthony Horowitz is a good shout. Hmm, interesting, interesting. Going back to talking about Sayward and the <laughs> kind of stories that were on in there, well, it's just a thought that I had and I didn't get a chance to slot it in. Some of the best stories in that period of Doctor Who are the ones that are least like the rest of what's going on. Kinder and Snake Dance, Enlightenment, even Mark of the Rani, they stand out because they're apart from the rest of... They have a different tone to the rest of the stories around them. They rise up against some of the mediocrity, don't they? 
They do, and I think in spite of the fact that they're very good stories anyway, I think they stand out even more as being good stories because of what you just said, yeah. My memory serves me right. I remember when Kinder came out, it was like bottom of the DWM polls. Now, though, over the the, the, the intervening years, people have gone back and reappraised a lot of you know, those stories you mentioned, and they've turned around and said, you know, that's actually not too bad. It's actually quite good. In fact, it's easily the best story of uh, season 19, I think. I like her shock as well. Just to go back to Sayward again, I know it's like picking a scab, but uh, (laughs) Dave Dave from Melbourne, who's a a regular correspondent to our podcast, and occasionally yours, I've been hearing him uh, tarting his way on your podcast as well, so hello Dave if you're listening. Uh, He's uh, asked... (laughs) And he will be, don't worry. He will be. And he asked a a question of you, a couple of Eric Sayward questions, which we've obviously gone through, but he says, um, both your podcasts have commented rightly, in my opinion, about... What a disaster the trial season was conceptually. But there's been little mm. comment on the original plan for season 23. Is it possible that Nightmare Fair, Mission to Magnus, Hollows of Time, etc. would have been a good, fun season? No. No, I agree. It would have been like more of season 22, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 Let's have a look at the returning monsters. Celestial Toymaker, Autons, Rani, Master, Ice Warriors, Sill... Not much originality there. It's like they had all the first string of returning monsters in season 22. So in season 23, they were clutching at straws, trying to figure out which other ones they could bring back. Yeah. And you know, while you might think, oh, it would have been nice to have the Celestial toy maker, in practice, it would probably have been horrible. It would have been a disaster. You have a European playing an Oriental character in 1985 or 86. I mean, it was bad yeah. enough in the late 60s, but... Uh... Jeez, can you imagine the furor? Just trying to keep the three fans happy who remembered his original appearance by bringing yeah. him back. It's just insane. Well, just as we record, actually, on that note, there's this thing now, who is Missy? And by the time this podcast goes out, of course, everybody will probably know because it's in the episode that's coming up tomorrow evening. And, the, you know, some of the who is Missy? And now it's become this big thing in the trailer, I think, as well. Who is Missy? Who is Missy going to turn out to be? Well, if it's a big thing in the trailer that they're asking it of the nation at large, it's not going to turn out to be Susan or Romana or the Rani, who the public at large have never heard of. Or the meddling monk. No. <laughs> it's, so yeah. it's, it's either going to be the master or it's going to be something that relates to the Doctor in a way that the audience at home can understand without needing to have it explained to them. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, it's, yeah. They're not going to go for bizarre left-field concepts and, and things like, oh, it's the Valyard coming back. I mean, who remembers who the Valyard was? Who cares? No, yeah, exactly. You can bring things back. Um, like, say, for instance, you could bring the Valyard back or the Rani or Romana. You can bring things back, like the Great Intelligence, as long as the in-story explanation is sufficient to allow them to be there. Correct. But when you bring the Great Intelligence back... It, you don't make a big thing of the fact that you're bringing the great intelligence back. It's just a natural part of the story. The story comes first and the great intelligence comes out of it. Yeah. But if you say, oh, look, look what we're about to do. We're about to bring back the celestial toy maker. And then you don't have the story that goes with that. It's just a complete nightmare, isn't it? A nightmare fair. 
<laughs> it was actually just to bring it back and we saw some of that in practice with uh, attack of the Cybermen, where they're referencing you know team of the Cybermen, which hadn't been seen for 20 odd years before that and it's just a mess yeah and they're even mentioning um i think that story is a sequel not just to tomb of the Cybermen, but also to the invasion and also to the 10th, 10th planet. planet yeah what is it appealing to apart from me as a 15 year old kid who lucked it up and now I just think it's well it's appealing to Ian Levine because he wrote it or co-wrote it that's what it's appealing to it's really hard to say who had what ideas there though because presumably Ian Levine said uh, why don't you do a sequel to the Tomb of the Cybermen set in the tombs that explains some of the things that didn't quite make sense about other Cybermen's story. And let's face it, the Cybermen's history has always been just a little bit hard to follow. <laughs> There's even a diagram in David Banks's book, The Cybermen, and it still makes no sense. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's it. That's the point. Yeah. You, can, you can take something like that and make a story of it that appeals to everybody because, you know, an element that returns is significant to a fan who knows it's a returning element but as long as that element worked in the first place, there's no reason not to use that element because if it worked then, presumably it'd still work now. As long as you don't make your story a kind of virtual version of that diagram because that's what Attack of the Sidemen was. It was that diagram from the David Banks book on a television screen. Mm. Of course that wasn't going to appeal. <laughs> Which had beer all over it. And cigarette, yeah. and cigarette butts. Yeah. This is a giant ashtray, wasn't it, really? Mm. Ashtray of the Cybermen. Yeah, yeah I think you're just, right. I've listened to Nightmare Fair, um, Mission to Magnus, and I think uh, Leviathan I started listening to and turned it off halfway because I was bored by it. And yeah, they they, they should have they remained a mystery because really they're just not that great. No. Mention of the Great Intelligence uh, leads us to The Web of Fear, which was formerly a missing episode, a missing story. Which leads, leads us to our um, Omni Rumor Alert System, JR, which we debuted in our last episode, Mark. Beautiful segue, oh, Rob. Okay. Well done. Oh, look, I've been, you can tell I've been listening to radio for 30 years. So <laughs> um, we might as well re- wheel that out, Mark, since uh, JR is with us today. Um, Absolutely. So, JR, we've got four alert uh, ratings uh, low, medium, high, or extreme. So, low is the release of missing episodes not expected, extreme means that release of missing episodes is imminent or has occurred. Medium and high, you can guess your own. JR, where are you on the International Omni Rumor Public Alert System? Oh, I think currently you'll have to come up with the fifth slot. Oh, no, it's another sound effect. I'm on <laughs> sub low. Sub low? Yeah, I think at the moment, I don't even know. You know, I've, throughout this whole thing, I've thought, yes, there are more episodes, and yes, we will get them eventually. But the way I feel at the moment, I'm kind of in a space where not only do I not think we're going to see them anytime soon, I can't even be sure that there's going to be any more. I think that's a sad reality dawning on a lot of people who have followed the ups and downs of the Omni Rumor. I would like to think there are more, but, you know, it struck me the other day that if, if, say, five years ago, Phil Morris had said to, let's call him Person X, right back at the very start of this, and said, I'm on the hunt for Doctor Who episodes and uh, I think I may be able to find these stories and names a half a dozen stories or something. Then that person's thinking there is a hope that those stories can be found. Then, another 12 months or two years on, Phil Morris says to somebody else, 
I've had success. I have found some Doctor Who stories. And he's talking about nine episodes of Enemy of the World and Web of Fear. What he doesn't know is that person Y, who he's just told, but he hasn't said which episodes it is because he wants it to remain a secret until the big reveal so that they can make a big splash, has already talked to Person X because Person X has been gossiping about it. So Person X has said, oh, Phil Morris is on the hunt of X, Y, Z, A, B, C, comes up with a list of all these stories that Phil Morris is on the hunt for, and Person Y is thinking to himself, oh, Phil Morris has just told me he's found these stories. That means he's found 90 episodes of Doctor Who, and it can't be too long before they're released back into the public. And actually, all that's happened is a bit of wishful thinking from Phil Morris at the start of the search, coupled with him trying to keep a secret a bit later on when he actually did strike a bit of success, and all of a sudden you've got a list of 90 episodes out there when actually nine are all that have been found. Some of Phil's statements like... Um the wind is blowing in the right direction and things like that do give people some hope that there's going yeah. to be more released. And, and because he hasn't categorically come out and said, there are no more, I have nothing left, or I found three or four Hancocks, and that's all I found. There's been no yeah. definitive, that's it. And that's what are giving people hope, including myself a little bit as well. Yeah, yeah. But I'd still like to think there are. And I still like to think that he, if he hadn't found any more, would have said so. But then again, like I say, if you go back and it's wishful thinking at the start, it might still be wishful thinking now. He might be thinking, I've struck gold ones. I'm not going to rule it out happening again. And so the search continues. So I'm not saying I definitively think there are no episodes. And I'm not saying I definitively think there are more episodes, but I'm just saying my frame of mind at the moment is that I'm thinking it's not looking likely, and certainly we won't be seeing any anytime soon. And what, where, where are you on the alert system, Mark? I'm not going to invent a new category because that means I have to find a new sound effect. So I'm still going <laughs> to, I'm still going to go with <laughs> low. If you're going to do a new sound effect for very very low, mm. sub low. Then it has to be the sound effect from the tombs on Telos, doesn't it? Might be. Or I was thinking about Sylvester McCoy playing the spoons. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. Okay. I was just going to say, you're not hopeful then. No, not at all. I read some Facebook pages, uh, you know, postings and some tweets, and, and some people are convinced he has them, you know, and he's hoarding them. And a bit over it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this is the thing. I think... Uh, because it's so slow and because nothing appears to be happening mm. in spite of what people say about everything's getting restored and all this kind of stuff obviously mm. that's not happening you kind of when you first hear it you get so enthused about it and um, obviously the release of Enemy and Web gave us all another boost of enthusiasm mm. but that was a year ago now yeah. and I think most people get to the point where they just say well if it happens it happens and if it doesn't you know, we've not lost anything. No, it's not. Right. Life moves on. Mm. Rob! I think you have to be really pragmatic about this. I mean, you see uh, Steve Roberts at the start of the year say in that Radio Free Scarrow interview, there's nothing Nothing else has been returned. The, the, the restoration team is not working on anything. We would be the people who would be working on anything if anything further was returned. And then recently you see that article in DWM where someone from BBC Worldwide says... BBC doesn't have anything more back from anyone with regards to Doctor Who missing episodes, and we're certainly not working on anything that's missing because nothing has been handed back. So mm. you just have to be pragmatic about these sort of things. And really, I mean, as we've said before, uh, 
We've had two, almost two complete stories return last year, which is fantastic. And I think people should, you know, dial back their expectations and realise that the, the way missing episodes have been returned since the early 80s is... There's a pattern there. I was just writing this down. You had, you had Ian Levine find two or three stories from Nigeria, and then there was a dribble of orphan episodes, and then there was Tomb of the Cybermen. And then there was more dri- uh, more uh, orphan episodes dribbling in, and then suddenly uh, Phil finds two uh, two stories. I mean, I, I, I think... Personally, I think... I mean, I'd love, I'd love for there to be more, but you've just got to be realistic. I don't think there is any more that Phil has found. And as you say, he's hopeful of finding more. The search continues. He has his company, etc., out there in the field. But I think that it's going to revert back to, to normal. We've had the bulk find, and now we're going to have some more orphan episodes perhaps turn up in you know unusual and strange places. Well, while he's still out there and while he's still looking, chances are, if he hasn't found anything else yet, because we've had this dribble of orphan episodes over the years... Maybe he will find a couple more orphan episodes. Well, exactly. Who knows? But we don't know if he's still looking. We don't know if he's stopped looking. We just don't know, do we? Well, no. I'm pretty sure he was still looking, uh, certainly up until the middle of this year, but I have no idea what he's up to nowadays. So my my position on the alert system is... Our low setting, Mark. It's um. It hasn't changed from last cast. No, no, not at all, not at all. All right, so let's go through some letters, shall we? You've got mail. First letter is from somebody called Jr. Southall. Oh um, my god! <laughs> hello there, Jr. If you're listening. <laughs> I, I think he probably will be. Okay, so it starts off by saying, Rob, you are wrong! Exclamation mark. Frequently wrong, I admit it, frequently wrong. I'm talking, of course, about Rob's angry comment in the last podcast when he talks about Missy and how he wishes Moffat would skip the arc story and just write a proper story instead. I remember this, yes. Because, of course, the final two episodes of the series will consist of a proper story, whether we've seen Missy throughout any of the rest of the series or not. So by adding those sequences into the first two episodes and by including mentions in a number of others, all Stephen Moffat has really done has been to see the story forward for those who do like that kind of thing. In effect, they're essentially like trailers. They don't really have any effect on the story that contains them. You'd barely notice a difference if they weren't there, but they build anticipation for something that is yet to come. So boo, Rob, for not appreciating them Exclamation mark! <laughs> in in defence of my uh, not liking them, um, I'm I'm just I suppose I'm just jaded on the whole arc or the whole idea of an arc being seeded through the series, because I think on a number of occasions the anticipation has not been justified or not, has not been met at the end of uh, you know the, with the series finale. So um, I just think that occasionally. They her intrusion into the stories is jarring, doesn't really meet the tone of what's gone on before or on either side, and I'm, I'm probably too much of a cynic to to think that um, all the build up will 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 meet my sort of and you know anticipation or when uh, Dark Water and, and Death in Heaven uh, screen. So um, I mean I can see JR's point absolutely because yes I mean they they are being seeded through for those who like them they're great conversation points but unfortunately they're just not for me. Yeah, and you're right. In a way, the finale can never live up to the anticipation that you've built because every single person watching is going to have his own expectations of what it all means. And everybody's going to have a slightly different expectation of what it all means. 
so that by the time you get to the end, that expectation's never going to be met because it's not going to be all of those different explanations. I mean, I'm hoping it's a it's a rich and satisfying explanation or or denouement at the end involving Missy, and I hope I'm sitting there, you know, in two Sundays' time, going, "Geez, that was really good." Hats off to Stephen Moffat and everyone else. I on past form, I don't know that that'll happen. I'm hoping it does, but on past form, I don't think it will. But uh, as an example, if you hadn't had the two um, impossible girl versions of Clara before we got regular Clara, mm. and if you hadn't had throughout Series 7B the anticipation that there was going to be an explanation for how there could be three Claras at the end, if the name of the Doctor had just stood on its own and it had finished with Clara throwing herself into the Doctor's timeline and you seeing all these different versions of the Doctor, everybody would have said, wow, that was astonishing. And nobody would have said, yeah, well, that didn't quite live up to what I was expecting, having seen Asylum of the Daleks and the Snowmen. No, that's a fair point. No, I agree. That's a fair point. Happy to concede that. Oh. No no, no fisticuffs, Mark. No fisticuffs. All, you know, civilised. It's very civilised, actually. I was thinking about this today as I was uh, splitting copious amounts of wood. And uh, that's what she said. That's what she said. It's like grinding my coffee beans. For me, the best series arc has been series three I said it before and sort of shovel down your throat like uh some of the later moffat series where it was done quite subtly i mean last of the timelines didn't pay off for me at the end but in terms of like oh you, you utopia realize who it is and but then you did have in the lazarus experiment one of uh saxon's henchmen turning up and taking martha's mother to one side and then in the next story you had 42 you had um, martha making the phone call home and the camera pulls back to realise another one's of another one of Saxon's hench people's there, hmm. making sure Martha's mother says the right thing. I don't know. I think it's what you make of it. Hmm. I think I liked the Impossible Girl one hmm. because I don't because I don't think that was something that was imposed upon the character, but something that came out of the character. And it was only because Stephen Moffat knew that the character was going to jump into the Doctor's timeline at the end that he was able to come back through the stories and say right. This is what we can do to get there. And the character wasn't really affected by it. I think some of the ones like Bad Wolf and Torchwood, where you just say a name and then the name turns up in the last episode, that's not really an arc. None of them have really been an arc. They've just been foreshadowing of a finale. They've been like trailers, really. Yeah, no, that's a fair and point. If, yeah, that's fair. That's and in fair. fact... This year, what you've had is an actual proper character development arc between Clara and Danny. That's yes. been the true arc of the series. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. After that awkward silence. Um, <laughs> so, so nobody's got the letters in front of them, have they? Uh, no. Have I got to read yeah. all these out myself? If I open up my Gmail, I'm afraid my computer will fall over, so we'll just move on. Okay. Right, well, okay. I'm sitting in your living room. You could just hand me okay. one. Okay, here, here you go, JR. Um, I'll, I'll, here's another no, one. No, uh, I can't read that. It's upside down. <sighs> okay, I'll turn it. You better read it yourself. Okay. You better read it yourself. Is this a skit? <laughs> it's a skit. You don't it's like in the skits. sense of a skit. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it didn't work. It's failed visibly. The, the humour did not come out of the conversation. No, exactly. Okay, ne- next I'll, letter. I'll t- next letter. Okay, this is from Kieran Hyman. Hi, Kieran. Hi, Kieran. Hi, man. Hello, fellow Australians. You should be reading this, JR. Hello, fellow Australians. Kieran Hyman (laughs) here. I wish to announce my presence as a listener of your podcast. 
I also want to thank you for introducing me to the world of podcasting. After seeing an article online for a podcast and that this podcast was about my favorite Doctor Who subject, Missing Episodes. Apparently, this podcast guest host had recently interviewed Philip Morris. Thus was I exposed to JR. Oh, wow. He's going to be exposed to him even more after this episode. We've been exposing ourselves to JR all night. Anyway, keep going. Any- wow, this episode is euphemastic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've been listening to you podcast too much with all your ones the last couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's even more in the next one, I think. Oh, is there? Oh, I think Something so. to look forward to, dear listeners. Absolutely. Mm. Anyway, back to us. I wanted to know if either of you used to watch the classic series repeats on the ABC from 2003 to 2006, because that's how I was introduced to the show back on the 15th of September 2003, a date etched into my mind. I was never bothered by the plot holes left by the missing episodes because I owned Doctor Who, the legend book that had since fallen apart from constant reading. The problem that I had was being the only five-year-old in preschool who could quote the Tomb of the Cybermen, the only student who borrowed the Target novels from the school library, and the only one who ever dressed up as Patrick Troughton, complete with cardboard stove, pipe, hat, and the only child who could name all eight doctors. Who is this Christopher Ickeston? That's my bit done, so goodbye. And remember to tell the kids, keep Australia beautiful. After all, it's all we've got. That and our most famous export, Dame Edna Everidge. See the Flaming Crows, Stone the Flaming Crows, Kieran Hyman. When he says Australia's all you've got, he's wrong. You also have boats. <laughs> no, we actually turn those boats around in the middle of the ocean these days. That's a bit political. <laughs> we'll move on, I can't we? comment on that as a public servant, so uh, let's just move on, Mark. Hello, Tony, if you're listening. I still uh, can't comment on that, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Rob, do you remember? I don't know. Did JR as well. Do you remember watching the ABC repeats in two thousand in the early two thousands? Uh, I, I do. Yeah, I've been watching them ever since I've been sitting on your sofa. Mark, were they the repeats at four thirty in the morning, or were they the ones? No, from the that was that was a ninety three batch when the, the ABC had to get rid of all their repeat rights. So they put them on at four thirty in the morning. It was it was really convenient. Now these ones about six o'clock. I think they started repeating from the beginning. And they had to skip most of the Dalek stories because of Terry Nation rights issues. So in the, they didn't show the war games because they had a five-second clip of the, of the Dalek at the end. And they said Doctor Who fans would get too upset if we edit that bit out. So they didn't show all ten episodes. That's depriving Terran Sticks of valuable wow. repeat rights. Which is insane. I mean, you could have just edited the Dalek out. Who would have cared? I think it's slightly endearing that Kieran was the only kid in school who read the t- Target novelizations. I remember when I was a in primary school here, my librarian would let me go through the new books, uh, boxes of new books that come to the school library, and I'd, I'd pluck out uh, the new the Doctor Who target novelizations. I think I picked up uh, a copy of Tomb of the Cybermen and read it before anyone else in the school. Not that anyone else was actually going to read it at the school. But... <laughs> Were the targets ready, av- readily available to buy? Oh, absolutely. It used to be on the shelves three months after... Uh, the UK distribution date, oh, although there were okay. some stores that used to import them and used to get them pretty much a week after UK release for an extra do- for extra dollar used to cost us to get the uh, import in. Could you walk into any bookshop in town and see the targets? We, I was able to walk into uh, into news agencies. When I was living in country Victoria, my local news agency, I had a friend whose father ran the news agency, they would have, you know, dozens, not dozens, but lots and lots of target novelisations. So they were readily available before the big uh, wow. chain bookstore sort of hit, hit Australia. Um, 
yes i mean there yeah. were plenty of them around this i mean and up, actually it's funny up until a few years ago you couldn't walk into a secondhand bookshop in melbourne and not you know sort of stumble over a big pile of the target novelizations but they all seem to have drifted away so it's all very strange maybe people have been buying them up to find out what the classic series is all about you know new adherence to the new series maybe our episode day on target might have had something to do with it they've been rushing out to pick them up i'm sure Plug, plug. I suspect it probably did. <laughs> what about you, JR? What are your memories of the Target range? Oh, I never got any in the library because I've always been one of these people who needs to own. Yes. So as soon as I became first aware of the Target books, I just bought as many as I could, as often as I could, until I had all of them. Paperback mm. or hardback? Paperbacks, all paperbacks. Mm. Easier to acquire. I didn't even realise there were hardbacks until much later when you couldn't get them ever when you just couldn't get them anymore not for sensible money anyway yeah most of them got shipped over here yeah well they were all i think we had the hardbacks in the library but obviously like i say i didn't go looking for targets in the library because i already owned them and mm. they were just paperbacks in the shop so i just bought the paperbacks and to this day i prefer paperbacks to hardbacks i prefer ebooks now no Really? Yeah. No, 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 yeah. no. Yeah, no, I no. just, any novels or anything like that, just put on my iPad and read it. I still buy, like, coffee table books and special edition books, but novels and things, I just read them and don't go back to them. No, I'm looking wow. at a box of books uh, on the floor here, and I'm looking at a pile of books on top of the box of books, and on, the, on my chair, my comfy chair, there's another 15 or 16 books. So, uh, would to God that I'd gotten into e-books earlier, but it's too late now. Oh, God, I'm yeah. just looking at them now and this... I'm just filled with dread. This is about five years' worth of reading here. <laughs> anyway. Well, the room I'm sitting in now just has shelves and shelves and shelves of books and shelves and shelves and shelves of DVDs. It's just shelves in this room. I'm having a Viking funeral when I go. I'm going to I'm gonna be on a ship full of books and I'm just going to go. Just burn. No. Burn, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no. It's going to have to be a ship. Yeah, exactly. Now, speaking of burning, I've got another email here from uh, Angry of Mayfair. Ah. Yeah, we've done something, right? He goes, Dear Robert Mark, I was again outraged listening to your podcast. You're not the only one. When you described that game played in the colony of New South Wales as rugby. Rugby is a game for gentlemen, where unlike cricket, we can still beat the best in the world, apart from the frogs and the argies. <laughs> Oh dear. Rugby league played in the penal colony of Sydney is a mutated version of the game, slowed down and simplified so that even Australians can play it. I trust you shall not make this mistake again. If you do, we shall have no choice but to return Jermaine Greer to you. Yours, Angry of Mayfair. Lovely. Let's just all break eye contact and move away, shall we? <laughs> Let's move away. So once again, thank you very much, JR, for coming on board uh, the 42 to Doomsday podcast. I've really had a great time uh, having a chat to you about all things Doctor Who. And I've really enjoyed my Australian holiday, fellas. Thank you. Nah, that's fine. Th thank you very much again. It was brilliant. Really enjoyed it. All right. So until uh, we all meet again, thank you once again for listening to the 42 to Doomsday podcast. We'll talk soon. Bye. And we'll speak again soon. <laughs> You've been listening to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the Doctor Who podcast hosted by Robin Mark. And I'm JR. You can contact us on our Twitter account at 42 to Doomsday. You can email us at our Gmail account, 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. Facebook us at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. Until we meet again, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you soon. I absolutely love Eric Sayward.